please raise your hand. All right, so I got one person who doesn't isn't responsible. But the, the rest of you should have three things, huh? That, that, the reason I say that is you want to have key points that speak to you because God will help you with the rest. In other words, three points that get you to the aquifer. They like drill through the crust and get you to the aquifer. Uh, and then you don't have to remember how this all hangs together or everything I said, but there should be three points that are speaking to you. That's Ignatian, by the way. <laughs> Everything's in threes. Uh, okay, let's try it. Oh. Technical difficulties. But we'll continue on while we're resolving that. So we go to 10.20, no, 11.05, 11.05. All right, last big talk. We'll have a little one this afternoon. But One of the biggest obstacles to leadership is overcommitment. Overcommitment. You didn't know that. <laughs> Of course you did. You and I often get caught up in too many responsibilities. We're now accessible to anyone across the world, even with a text. Our heightened technological age has led us to the point where we feel that we need to be responsible to people immediately. It's been five minutes since I sent that text. What's the matter with you? Are you okay? <laughs> Parents now hover over their kids, even in college, with daily phone calls and daily texts. Two days ago, I was talking with a young freshman from Creighton University, whom I knew from my time in Houston at the school I was at for low-income families. Several times a day, she's in touch with her mother. And once, while at Mass, <laughs> it was over an hour before she responded to her mom. And her mom began to worry, to push the panic button, because she has a new boy in her life and was worried maybe something happened. So she was going to call Father Anthony, because she knows that the girl will respond if Father Anthony calls her. And of course, I would have picked up immediately. <laughs> We need to be more discerning, discerning spirits. As burgeoning leaders in the church, we have to recognize which spirits are of God and which are of not. Test the spirits, St. Paul says. Test the spirits to see which ones are of God. <clears throat> Certain spirits are good at making us run ragged. On a side note, some doubt the existence even of these tempting spirits, though Jesus speaks about them all the time. They conquer us by simple yet subtle military strategy. <clears throat> the great 18th century Prussian general, Clausewitz, so effective in his military operations, 
laid out why he was so effective. He says that the prime analogate of all military strategy is to convince the enemy that you don't exist. That's how the evil spirits work too. Read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters on that. Oh, they don't exist. And so they put silly images in our mind of some dude in little red tights with a pitchfork. Like, well, that's silly. Well, it is silly. But oh no, the devil is a well-dressed gentleman. You better believe it. Secondly, Clausewitz teaches us, if the enemy knows that you exist, convince him that you aren't where you really are. And so we get caught up in the wrong things. And I'm super involved over here when I really should be over there. C.S. Lewis says there are fashions of thought that we get caught up in. I think we get caught up in fashions of thought. One fashion of thought now is don't judge, which allows for anybody to, you know, you're living with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you're doing this or that. My friend in college, uh, another uh, example, another person in college, said, I went to this party to meet some people and they're like, oh, hello, what's your name? Yeah, my name's Sue. And, and is it, oh, okay, my name's Bill. What's your gender? First question. Huh? Instead of receiving ourselves as a gift of God, we think we're going to construct ourselves. It's a little subtle here, but Pope Benedict, when he was still Cardinal Ratzinger, I believe somewhere wrote that the greatest denied dogma today is the dogma of creation. And when I read that, I was like, creation? Everybody knows creation. Who denies that? I don't believe that. But then he explained that we think we're self-created. I choose who I'm going to be. I choose my gender. I choose whatever I want to do. And you better just put up with it. Don't judge. So we have these fashions of thought that we don't identify as fashions, and so the evil spirits encourage that. C.S. Lewis, the use of fashions in thought is to distract men, these are evil spirits talking, to distract men from their real dangers. We evil spirits direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is in the least danger. And we fix its approval on the virtue that is nearest the vice that we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have them all running around with fire extinguishers when there's a flood. And all crowding to that side of the boat, which is already nearly gone under. The third military strategy of Clausewitz. Convince the enemy that you don't have the forces that you do. So the evil spirits want us to not recognize the God-given gifts that we have and to not know ourselves. And so we kind of, I don't know, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know that I can be a leader. I mean, I'm weak and I don't have it all together and I make mistakes and, and I just don't want the responsibility 
And lastly, convince the enemy you don't have the proper supplies to keep your forces fortified. And ladies and gentlemen, you do have the proper supplies. They're called prayer and sacraments. So certain evil spirits want to run us ragged. In other words, if an evil spirit can't dissuade you from doing good, do you know what he'll do for you and me? He'll get behind me and push me forward. He'll get behind me and push me forward faster than I should be going without being discerning anymore. And consequently, we will say yes to almost everything that comes down the pike. We get overextended and we burst from exhaustion. That's his plan. I grew up on a farm. A well-known herbicide, 2,4-D. Who's ever heard of 2,4-D? It's like Roundup. 2,4-D. The well-known herbicide 2,4-D works on this principle. Causing the cells that carry water and nutrients in the weed to divide and to grow without stopping till the plant bursts. That's what it does. It doesn't like make the plant cut something out of the plant. It actually encourages cell division till it bursts. 2,4-D. What is the 2,4-D in your life? You've got it. Evil spirit's going to definitely use it. What is mine? What are the things that keep pushing me to do more and more? Jesus, for his part, says that we need to curb those tendencies. We need to prune those tendencies. Remember how Jesus explains that if you have a plant, and he gives the example of a vine... If you don't prune it, you get wild grapes all over the place. You get all kinds of grapes, but they're all tiny, and none of them are good for crushing and turning it into wine. And the wine will never become the blood of Christ either. Because they're wild grapes all over the place. And we didn't have the courage to prune. A healthy life is a pruned life. It is made of solid choices. Quality time with the Lord. Quality time with the Lord. Did I say that? Paradoxically, sometimes the greatest gift we can give to our kids is our unavailability. I know that sounds shocking, but what I'm simply saying is that we should be a witness to them that when it's our prayer time, we are unavailable. Mommy and Daddy, Mommy's with, talking with Jesus. Daddy's with Jesus now. They are unavailable. If it's not an emergency, we are not available. We make ourselves hyper-available to our kids and to our phone and all kinds of things which puts God in second place. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all the rest will be given you besides. Seek first the kingdom of God and I'll take care of your kids or your husband or that situation you're worried about. What a great witness to them about priorities. I recall breaking in on my mom and dad once as a little boy, running into their room night. They were both kneeling on either side of the bed doing their prayers. 
It was so beautiful. I'll never forget that. They were unavailable to me. If we're not pruning occasionally, we're not healthy. What do you and I have going on in our life that's too much? What are my priorities? Sometimes our priorities get off to where we live vicariously through our kids. In other words, we're so concerned about my kid getting into Vanderbilt, let's say, or whatever university, that I wouldn't consider letting them miss a single tutoring session. But maybe they're tired on Sunday morning and they don't feel like going to Mass. Well, maybe we'll try for a later one, catch a later one, if we feel like it. We'll see. Where are our priorities in this? Getting them into the finest college we can imagine for them could indeed be our 2,4-D. So we're hyper-driven. Not just to get them to college, but this particular college. You can't get a 3.7. You need a 3.9 at least. You've got to take those extra AP courses to get the extra credit to bump up your GPA. Sometimes our priority is that our kids be really excellent in sports. We wouldn't let them miss a single practice. I myself coached freshman basketball in high school. But now basketball and other sports are run, I don't need to tell you this, as a year-round program. There's now off-season workouts. It's not the basketball season. We still want you to be coming into the gym if you're going to play next year. Uh, You You need to do the off-season workouts. Crazy. My parents told me and my siblings growing up, You can each choose one sport each year. (laughs) You choose the sport. But we're not going to shuttle you around kingdom come. Hmm? As if this were the necessary way to help you thrive. That would be like putting 2,4-D on us. Hyper-involved. No. Thriving requires pruning. There's no other way around it. We're not going to arrive one day at the gates of heaven and be asked how faithful we were to our volleyball practices or our soccer tryouts or tutoring sessions. A leader like you exercises authority in a healthy way and knows how to prune. You should know how to prune yourself and thus know how to prune those entrusted to you as a leader. The word authority comes from the Latin word, augere, which means to grow or to help flourish. Authority. True authority, I'm like a farmer over this plant, and I give the plant the water it needs and the nutrients it needs and the sunlight so that it flourishes. That's what true authority does. It helps the other flourish. And will prune unhealthy branches or even healthy branches so that the other branches become full of goodness. Healthy pruning. You all know from pruning I'm not a great uh, 
guy with plants, but I know that oftentimes when you're pruning properly trees and whatnot, you're cutting off some really good, healthy branches, right? So that the right ones will keep coming through and it won't be overly thick. A leader prunes. A leader teaches balance. My dad had a quote he constantly used growing up because he loved his Latin. He said the best English course he ever had was a Latin course because it taught him subjects and objects and things like that. Huh? But he, his phrase was, in medio virtus stat. In medio virtus stat. In medio, in the middle, virtus, virtue, stands, stat, or lies. Huh? Virtue lies in the middle course. Virtue is in a balance. Not one extreme way over here and not one extreme way over here. Virtue, the virtuous life of flourishing is in the middle course. Not too much academics or sports or television. A middle course of it or movies or whatever. Virtue is about flourishing, choosing what helps myself and those I'm entrust, who are entrusted to me as a leader to flourish. Vice is also a habit. Virtue is a habit. That's what it means. And vice is a habit. Vice is about getting overextended, trying to do too much, saying yes to everything, considering myself more a human doing than a human being. A nice phrase to remember in this context is, when I can't say no, my yes means nothing. If I can't say no to you, oh, oh sure, I'll come. Yeah. Huh? If I can't say no, my yes means nothing. Another phrase of St. Ignatius. You're going to have to get some Ignatius. I'm a Jesuit. Non multas sed multum. Non multas. Don't be doing many, many things. Multas. But do multum. Sed means but. Non multas. Not many things. But multum. A few things. Do a few things well. Don't try to do so much. Do a few things well. Prioritize. Prune. Non multas said multum. The evil spirit is really pushing the multas today. It's so crazy. When I drive home on Telegraph Road, I sometimes see people pulling out of St. Francis of Assisi or Queen of All Saints. And sadly, I like really admire them. I'm like, wow, that's pretty neat. They're a whole day and then they're spending some time with the church. But it shouldn't be such an amazing thing if we were better prioritized and we had a pruned life of quality time with each other. I love the model of Hispanic families. So I've been in Houston the last three years before this last year and other places. Hispanic families typically will take over entire parks with their families on Sunday afternoons. That's family time. And so they chill with each other. They just know how to chill. I love it. That's a great model. Not that we have to do that same thing, but it's just a model of we're just going to relax together as a family. 
This is family time. On the opposite end of the spectrum, I know of others who have such intense weekends that they live for that they come back Monday exhausted. And they just try to get through the week. We now call Wednesday the hump day, heading towards the weekend. Because so I can go frantically vacationing again down to Lake of the Ozarks. <laughs> I don't know how to slow down, huh? Perhaps we're afraid to slow down. Perhaps we're afraid of what might bubble up if we slowed down. Fear is a powerful motivator, very powerful motivator. But scripture tells us that perfect love, God's love, God's love received and savored casts out fear. If you fear what might bubble up, you need more of God's love to push it out. Do I have hidden fears in my life? If I do, bring those to the Lord. A leader processes her fears, his fears, and deals with them. A leader notices his or her own hidden motivations. Sometimes it might look like we are a partner with the other, but really we're in it somewhat for ourselves. Imagine a priest who's trying to impress his hunting partner with his hunting dog. Or imagine the partner of his, the hunting partner, never being able to extend a compliment. So they go out hunting, they're duck hunting. I did a lot of duck hunting growing up. And they're near this lake. And the ducks come over and they hit a duck and it hits the water. And the priest sends out his dog to go get the, to get the duck. And the dog walks on top of the water, grabs the duck, walks back on top of the water, and puts it at the priest's feet. And his friend acts like nothing happened. And they hunt some more, and some more ducks come over, and they hit another duck. And the dog again walks over the water, grabs the duck, walks back on top of the water, and puts it at the priest's feet. And the priest looks over there, and the guy still acts like nothing happens. It happens a third time, and the priest can't help himself. He's like, uh, so, do you notice anything about my dog? And the guy says, well, yeah, he can't swim. <laughs> what are my hidden motivations? Leadership requires prudential pruning of some unhealthy motivations. It also requires courage, godly courage. Courage in the face of obstacles. Courage in the face of fear. Remember this story from scripture. Luke 5, verses 4 to 6. When Jesus had finished speaking to the crowd, Jesus got into Simon Peter's boat, interestingly enough, for a choice of a boat, I'd like to be in that boat, mm, the bark of Peter. Anyway, when Jesus had finished speaking to the crowd, Jesus got into Simon Peter's boat and said to him, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. When Simon and his friends had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. 
put out into the deep water, he says. Duke in altum. Duke in altum. Put out into the deep. Now, this is the middle of the day. They hadn't caught anything that day. It was a bad day of fishing. And so it was a dumb idea to try again in the middle of the day. The fish aren't biting now, Jesus. I'm the professional fisherman. Thank you very much. This is not a good idea. It doesn't make sense. But somehow, a ray of hope penetrates Peter's heart. And he acquiesces to the Lord's wishes. And he paddles into the deep, as the Lord bids him to do. Jesus loves the deep. He loves the deep. It's a sign of the the Father's depth, profundity. He especially likes it when it's dark and there's roiling waves and he can kind of like bounce up and down and sleep on the waves. The sign of the Father's infinite creative power and majesty. Oh, he just sleeps on that. (laughs) Like thunderstorm, bring it on. But this is a normal day, peaceful day. And so Peter goes on into the deep. He trusts. And he throws out his nets, his nets, and again, this tremendous catch of fish. That's what you're about to do. You're going to lower your nets for a catch. God's already prepared the fish. You don't have to worry about the fish. You've just got to listen to Jesus and be brave, be courageous as leaders. And there will be other boats to help you bring in these fish. To be a leader like Peter's becoming, to be a leader like you're becoming, is to be a great fisher of men and women. How do we do this? I'd like to speak a little bit to some practical points here. First, we have to overcome our fear of trying something new within our parish. My fear of failure. Also, my sense of vanity, which is an undue concern about what others think of me. I'm a little worried about what you all think of me. Do you like me? That's vanity. Instead of just being who I am, speaking how God invites me to speak, and if some don't like it, that's okay. I'm not trying to offend anyone, but I don't expect everybody to like me. Not everybody liked Jesus. Jesus says, no disciples greater than the master. If they rejected me, they're going to reject you too. If one of you told me, oh no, Father Anthony, everybody likes me, I would be like, uh-oh, uh-oh, something's not right. You're fitting in too well with the river going downstream. I need to be bold. Vanity is the guillotine of saints. An undue concern about what others think of me. I then need to survey what are the needs of my parish. You need to be good listeners, and this is the perfect year to do it. Okay, you're still in the formation year. 
But listen deeply to the needs of your parish. Ask God for his view of your parish. Godly eyes. What's going on in your parish? What's not going on in your parish? How can I contribute to those needs? I have a unique constellation of gifts. Every one of us has a unique constellation of gifts. You should know what those are. How might I apply those gifts to the needs of the parish? How do I feel inspired to apply some of my gifts to the needs of the parish? Where in my parish, because it's going to happen in every parish, where in my parish is there a little death instead of life? Where are things a little dead instead of alive? Where are people not finding nourishment in the Lord? Or people not being fed? How can I lead them to the water who is Christ? Where is the need and how can my gifts begin to meet that need? Those questions should be constantly bubbling through your mind throughout this year. Listen to your parish. Talk to your people. Where might I apply my gifts? One simple example. There's a hundred examples, so I hate to give one example because they don't get you on one track, but there are some men's groups that I'm very surprised are not in St. Louis. Big city like this. We Iron sharpens iron, Proverbs. We men need other men in the spiritual life. I'm surprised that some of the men's groups I'm familiar with are not even in St. Louis. There are some men's groups here, which is great, but I think a lot more needs to be done with the formation of men. Uh, Women always need formation. Men sometimes don't even have options and enough options and challenges for that. That's just one example. What are my gifts and what are the needs of the parish? How can I match those? And pray about that and let God kind of bubble to the surface what he wants how he's going to lead you. Don't calculate this in your mind of what I'm going to do and why I'm going to do it and how this makes sense. Nor should I use my mind excessively where I'm overanalyzing, is this going to work? Is it not going to work? Trust. Put out into the deep. God's got a plan here. Go with it. Be brave. Talk to your pastor and go for it. Put out into the deep. God's already prepared the good works for each one of you. They're already prepared ahead of time. Get into that Marian listening attitude. Active receptivity. Where I'm waiting on the Lord to inspire me and then I move in that direction. St. Ignatius says, we Jesuits should always be like a man with one, one foot in the air. Now, I realize that's an awkward pose, and rather difficult to hold. But his point was, with one foot in the air, you can move to either direction, okay? You're not just stable. Uh, a true athlete will never stand with his, his knees completely locked. He'll always have a little bit of a bend in his or her knees uh, so that they're, they're ready to move. You know, you watch any sports. Uh, baseball now is going on, on the playoffs. The, the, the men all, all get down ready for that hit. 
Everybody's bent over, ready to move. Active receptivity. How is the Lord inspiring me to move? I'm ready to go in any direction that the Lord inspires me. Thankfully, he's the lead, and I'm just a listener. He's got the plan already for me in my parish. All I have to do is listen and follow through and not overanalyze and trust. He's going to help me along the way. He wants to walk with me in this path. God's plan. What makes us brave? What is it that makes us brave? I suggest that we are renewed each time in the Lord by entering into the sacred heart of Jesus. So, first an analogy from the heart. What is it that the heart does? If you look it up online, what is the function of a heart? The website Live Science says this, the human heart is an organ that pumps blood throughout the body via the circulatory system, supplying oxygen and nutrients to the tissues and removing carbon dioxide and other waste. That's what the heart does. So you and I, in the body of Christ, he's the head, we're the body, we're like cells that need to be drawn back into the sacred heart of Jesus to be rejuvenated, which means to be made young again. And the carbon dioxide that we carry with us and the other wastes have to get purified. And then we get oxygenated, thanks to the force of the blood through the lungs, oxygenated and sent out with nutrients and oxygen to all other cells. And draw them into this dynamic of coming back into the sacred heart of Jesus. The sacred heart of Jesus is always sending us out, sending us out. There's the, the systolic and diastolic huh? pressure of, of the blood being sent out, systolic, through the arteries, and coming back now with the carbon dioxide and other ways and the diastolic pressure. And back into the heart. And so we draw others into that dynamic where they're going to be re-strengthened. We're meant to be sent out. We're going to constantly lead the, need the Lord. Because, uh, Pope Benedict, again, I'm going to quote, he was writing a beautiful commentary on the Psalm of Songs. There's a scene there where the beloved is in bed, the lover knocks on the door, and she's wondering, should I go? The lover, of course, is the image of Christ knocking on her door, and she's like, oh, I don't know if I should leave the bed because I just shower. I just took a bath. Not shower. Back then it was a bath. Uh, I just took a bath, and I don't want to get my feet dirty going across to open the door. And she's like, should I, shouldn't I, should I? Oh, I guess I'll go. And she finally goes, too late. She opens the door. The lover's gone. So now she's chasing him through the highways and byways. Do you remember that story a little bit? Well, Pope Benedict comments on that and says, we always are getting our feet dirty in the world. We're going to constantly need the confessional experience. We need to let Jesus wash our feet. In your beautiful picture of this lay formation program, you have Jesus getting his feet, uh, Peter getting his feet washed by Jesus. Image of servant leadership, right? 
Peter's not especially comfortable with that. <laughs> it's a little awkward. My feet are kind of gross. If you looked at my toenails real carefully, you may, oh, you know. Uh, my one foot's not quite the same length as the other. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry about that toe, toe that kind of goes sideways a lot. Um, it's kind of, you sure you want to touch that part of me? Huh? But he wants to touch us where we're wounded. It's a constant story of the scriptures. He constantly touches the wound. He's very tactile. Peter has to let it happen. Jesus says, if you don't let this happen, if you don't let me wash you, draw me back into yourself, you'll have no part in me. And Peter says, how about a full baptism? How about washing my whole body? He's like, no, you've already taken a bath, but just the feet. Confession, you've already been baptized. Huh? So, the sacred heart of Jesus invites us back in to be re-oxygenated and then to be sent out as leaders to draw others into this path of Jesus, drawn back into the sacred heart of Jesus, to pick up those wastes and carbon dioxides and to listen to people's stories and to help them process where they're at and to lead them back into the sacred heart of Jesus where they'll now have the courage and the strength to prune, the courage and the strength to identify unhealthy behaviors in their life and for them to be engaged in being sent out to draw others back into the faith. Perhaps the greatest need in the church today is to preach the kerygma. In other words, what is it? what are the essentials of our faith? Pope Francis teaches us that the essentials of our faith are Jesus loves you, he gave his life for you, and he wants to walk with you. We need to get back to that. That Jesus wants a relationship with you. That's the kerygma any leader preaches in her or his own way. But there's a relationship involved here. It's not about catechesis. There's a place for catechesis. But what people need most is not to understand the parts of the Mass. What they need is relationship. Why are they even at Mass? A lot of people come to the White House and say, my kids are no longer practicing the faith. And I think I raised them at least as well as my parents did. My grandkids are no longer practicing the faith. The Archbishop sent out a note to all the priests. We now have, I believe it's 85% of kids by the age of 21 no longer practice the Catholic faith. Why is that? I asked a young priest from this archdiocese his thoughts on that. He said, maybe we're asking the wrong question. The question is not, why are they not practicing the faith? It's the third commandment. Thank you very much. But maybe we should be asking, why practice the faith? Why do you practice the faith? And so I challenge people now, when they have kids or grandkids who are not practicing the faith, actively and passively, have you spoken to them of why do you go to church? Why? Why do you go to church on Sundays and sometimes during the week if you can? Why? Do they know that? Your kids should know that. It, and it better be more than because we're supposed to. Why do you, and why do you go to confession? Why? Don't tell me I think we should. Why do you go to confession? What's the difference? Why does that make a difference in your life? 
Your kids and your grandkids should know that. You have to give that active testimony of the kerygma, of why that strengthens your relationship with Christ. Passively, you also need to give the testimony by living a virtuous life that it makes a difference in your life. And then actively, you speak to your kids or grandkids about where they're at and say, honey, I'm really concerned about you. When you pull away from the sacraments, you're fitting in with the rest of the world. You need to be drawn into the sacred heart of Jesus. I'm worried you're a good person and I don't want to see you become a little selfish and fit in with the rest of the world. I want to see you be other-centered. I want to see you give your life for others and I'm concerned about your pulling away from that. I'm concerned about you living with your boyfriend, your girlfriend before getting married. That's, that's, the, that's a recipe for using each other even though the world says it's okay. And you're going to crown that with a wedding ring? Learn how to say no to each other and then your yes will mean everything. You give that active testimony of your concern for them and then you support them. huh? When they begin re-looking at their lives, the good choices that they can make, affirm what's good in them. Always affirm what's good. But speak to your concerns of fitting in only too, world, only too well with the world. G.K. Chesterton, I mentioned him earlier. <laughs> there was a whole editorial in England at the time and the question was, what's wrong with the world? And they invited responses from all these great intellectuals. What's wrong with the world? So he wrote in with all his great intellect. He's, there's a cause for his canonization going now. And his answer was two words. What's wrong with the world? I am. <laughs> I am. I, I'm part of the problem. But that means I'm part of the solution too. I have a tendency to be selfish. And so I let myself be drawn back into the sacred heart of Jesus to be renewed, restored. Speaking of the sacred heart of Jesus, it's time now for exposition. So I invite you as we are in front of our Lord, Jesus Christ, to allow yourself to be drawn into him. When we receive communion, it's not so much we receive Jesus, it's about being drawn into Jesus and being renewed in Jesus and finding myself in the body of Christ like I've never found myself before. What organ am I in the body of Christ? What blood pumps through my vein that's constantly reoxygenated and restrengthened with nutrients through the sacred heart of Jesus? Keep that thought in mind as we go and adore our Lord.